This chapter 25, we are wrapping up our study of the tabernacle either this week or next week. This morning, take a very brief look at the Ark of the Covenant. Next week, we'll either have one final lesson, kind of sum up what we've learned on the tabernacle, or we'll have kind of a New Year's type message I have not yet decided. Depends on what we end up preaching for the Sunday morning message next week. But this is our eighth lesson. Um, ninth, if you count the expansion of the intro lesson that we did on a Thursday night, um, and and in nine lessons in nine weeks, we have barely begun to scratch the surface on the typology and the teaching and the truth and the significance and the applications that we can find from these final sixteen chapters of the book of Exodus that record both the pattern of the tabernacle and the construction of the tabernacle. If nothing else, I hope that you have seen just how deep and how rich the Bible is. In, 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 in what seems to be one of the most boring parts of God's Word, there is so much truth to be mined and to be gleaned. And, 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 and that'll help us. Then I hope you've seen how this book, the Holy Bible, all 66 books in every place and in every way, it points to, it magnifies, it exalts one person, not you, not me, the Lord Jesus Christ. And hopefully we'll see more of that this morning as we study the Ark of the Covenant. Um, we'll get to the picture. Isn't that beautiful artwork right there on a whiteboard? I mean, walking in, who could think that is anything other than what it is? <laughs> Exodus 25, verse number 10. The Bible says, They shall make an ark of shittim wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. Thou shalt overlay it with pure gold within and without. Thou shalt overlay it and shalt make upon it a crown of gold Roundabout. This is not the first time that we've seen these materials used in the composition of one of the items of furniture, the shittim wood, as we've studied in previous lessons, points to the humanity of Jesus Christ. The gold in this instance, just like the table of showbread and the golden altar, it points to the deity of Jesus Christ. And in that one person, you have both of those combined. He was 100% God. He was 100% man. He was God manifest in the flesh. He was the Word made flesh and dwelt among us. His incarnation teaches us that he has this dual nature, and it was all for the purpose of coming and, and bleeding and dying and being our Savior. The dimensions given in verse number uh, 10, the 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 Ark of the Covenant is a little bit smaller than the brazen altar. It's the same height, but a little bit bigger than the table. I'm sorry, but a little bit, uh, a little bit narrower than the table of showbread. And then it's the same, um, some of the same dimension as the golden altar. It, or I'm sorry, it's a good bit bigger than the golden altar, just a little bit uh, shorter, just by way of comparison with the other items that we've studied. So here's the Ark of the covenant. Its description is here in Exodus 25. The construction is recorded in Exodus 37. The word ark is used 230 times in the Bible. Obviously, not every reference to an ark in the Bible is the ark of the covenant. Who can think of another ark in the Bible? Raise your hand, somebody quick. Ashley. Noah's Ark, that one's mentioned 24 times in the Old, I'm sorry, 26 times in Genesis, four times in the New Testament, so that's 30. Who can think of another Ark in the Bible, Lauren? Didn't they call what Moses was in? Yes, an Ark of bulrushes twice 
in the book of Exodus. So that means the Bible mentions this piece of furniture 198 times, which is hands down more than any other article in the tabernacle. It's called the Ark of the Testimony 13 times. It's called the Ark of the Covenant 43 times. It's called the Ark of His Testament once in Revelation eleven nineteen. Who, who can tell me why would it be called the Ark of the Testimony? Why would it be called the Ark of the Covenant? Anyone want to pander a guess? Come on, somebody. It has to do with something that's inside of it. Okay, we'll get there in Exodus chapter 25. Let's keep going. Verse number 13. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood and overlay them with gold. We've noted before how the closer you get to this holy of holies where the presence of God would dwell, the more precious the materials of composition would become, the more ornate and embellished the decorations and the design of the interior. In the outer court, it's illuminated by natural light. In the holy place, it's illuminated by the candlestick. But in the holy of holies, it's illuminated now by the very presence and glory of God. Verse number 14, thou shalt make the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark. The ark may be born with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. This was because the Levites would carry it from place to place. And thou shalt put into the ark, here's the question I alluded to earlier, and thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. Okay, so the ark of the testimony is because the testimony was inside the ark but what was the testimony? It was the same thing as the covenant. And it was the, the law of God. It was God's word. It was scripture. It was truth. It was the covenant he had made with the people on top of Mount Sinai. Okay, so the ark, it housed the law. We learn uh, later in the New Testament, later in the Old Testament, it's written in Hebrews chapter 9. Also inside the ark, two other, um, two other items. There was the pot of manna and then Aaron's rod that budded. Those three items all inside, but the main, the most important item, the one that's highlighted here in verse 16, is the ark of the testimony. The ark represents the presence of the Lord. And what we glean from verse 16 is that you cannot separate God's presence from God's word. And that's an important point. Because people want to pretend that God is who they want him to be. God is who they imagine him to be. God is who society defines him to be. God is none of those things. God is who he said he was. Doesn't matter what we think. God should like and not like. It doesn't matter what we feel like God should do and not do. We are not able to define who God is. We don't create him in our image. He created us in his image and he revealed himself in one very special way. And it was through his word. And he reserves the right to communicate to us who he is. And he is who he said he is. And nothing more and nothing less. And you're not going to have a real relationship with the real God unless you define that God as revealed in his word. So God's word and God's presence are interconnected. They cannot be separated. The very heart of the tabernacle is the Holy of Holies. The very heart of the Holy Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. The very heart of the Ark is the covenant, the testimony, the law, the word of God. It is central 
to everything that took place in the nation's worship of Jehovah right in the middle was his word. And it's the same for us. We cannot have a relationship with God outside of the word of God. That's why it's important to come to a church and listen to the Bible preached. That's why it's important to choose a church where the Bible is preached. That's why it's so important to be a Bible reader, to have a daily habit of feasting your soul upon the bread from heaven because you can't have a relationship with God outside the word of God. It's central to everything that takes place. In the Christian life. Verse number 17. Thou shalt take a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof. And a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. We covered this before. What does the ark represent? The presence of God. The ark is the place where God would dwell with the people. It contained the law of God. But we, we learned the law of God condemns us. The law of God teaches us that we are unworthy to enter into his presence. The law of God teach, gives us the knowledge of our sin that separates us from him. And so of necessity, on top, on top of this ark that housed the covenant, there had to be a mercy seat. Because God deals with us in mercy, not after our iniquities. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us something else, and I'm glad that God delights in mercy. I'm glad there's a mercy seat on top of the ark. Verse number 18, thou shalt make two cherubims of gold, of beaten work shalt thou make them, and the two ends of the mercy seat, make one cherub on the one end, the other cherub on the other end, in the mercy seat, shall you make the cherubims on the two ends thereof, the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another, toward the mercy seat shall the face of the cherubim be. So on either side, you have these cherubims facing one another, and their wings spread out, covering this Ark of the Covenant, a picture of what really takes place where God's immediate personal presence is. The cherubim, as we read in Ezekiel, as we read in Revelation, cover the presence of God. And they fly about singing, holy, holy, holy. Verse 21, thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the Ark, and in the Ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. A restatement of what we read in verse 16. And there, verse 22, I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the Ark of the Testimony, of all things which I give which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. Again, God will meet with them. God will commune with them. That was his desire for the children of Israel. That is God's desire for every one of us this morning. And that is why he sent Jesus Christ. That's what he accomplished in Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the eventual outcome of our relationship to God through Jesus Christ. One day we will meet with God. We will commune with God. We will live and abide and dwell in his presence forever. And that was his intention and that is his desire. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus died on the cross, that veil that divided the holy place from the holy of holies, that veil that, that, that only the high priest could enter one time every year with blood, the sacrifice of an offering for sin for himself and then for the nation, that veil, the Bible says, when Jesus Christ bowed his head in death, it was rent in twain from top to the bottom. Hebrews says this signifying that there is a, there is a way of access. We have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I know I sped through that and I'm going to speed through the rest of this. I want to give you a picture and then I want to give you an application 
this morning, and then we'll practice our song a little bit more. Actually, let's let's do this first. Let's let's do some review. Let's see how much you've learned in the last eight weeks. This these hangings that form the perimeter here. What material was that made of? It was fine linen, okay, and it represented righteousness that. Uh, separated us from God that forced us to go in through one way. The door, and John 10, 9 says the door is? Jesus. Thank you, Blake. The door is? The door is Jesus Christ. But entering in through the door, the first article of furniture that you come to is the? Christian. The brazen altar. It's five by five by three. The death of the Godhead is the place where sacrifice for sin was made. And we do we do have to believe in Jesus, but we don't just come to God through Jesus. We come to God through Jesus by means of his sacrificial death. Now let's back up for a second. This entire area out here, this open area and then around the back, what is that referred to as? What is that called? I remember that is called where the where the brazen altar is and where that circle is. Michael? The outer court, okay? Anybody could enter into this outer court. The people of Israel, they'd come in the tabernacle and be here. They couldn't necessarily go in there. That's for Levites and priests. After, after the brazen altar, then what do you come to? What is this semi kind of quasi circular thing? Brian? The labor. The labor of what does it represent? Remember, it had water in it and they would wash their hands and their feet. It represents somebody, one of you. The word. The word. The, the water represents the word, and it washes and cleanses us. Now you're clean through the word that I have spoken. What is this compartment? What is this area called? This first division in this thing? Anybody other than Christian? Christian? The tabernacle proper. The tabernacle proper is this whole thing right here. Thank you. And it had those four different coverings, kind of like the four gospels, the four aspects of Jesus Christ, and then him, I saw your hand up. This section right here, this first section in the tabernacle proper or the sanctuary, it's called the the holy place. It had three articles of furniture inside. Over here was this object, which is everybody knows what that is, right? It is the Rebecca. You look like you know. It is the table of showbread. Thank you. I knew that you knew. And it had six loaves on either side, sixty-six books representing. The word of God, shedding light on the word of God. There was the, the golden candlestick. It had seven different lamps. It was full of different typology. But one of the main things is shedding light on the word of God, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives to, today. Across from the table of showbread, a little bit smaller piece of furniture. What was this one, Michael? The altar of incense or the golden altar. This this represented what according to Revelation chapter 8 and Psalm 141? Emma? Prayer. Prayer. Thank you for your participation. Everybody else can jump in too, because I know that you know it. Alright? So we've got we've got sacrifice for sin, we've got purification, we've got Bible reading, we've got the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we've got prayer. You enter in through this veil. What is this area called? Everybody say it together. Holy of Holies, the holiest of all, it's also called. And that's where the ark is, the mercy seat is, the presence of God was. One time on the day of atonement, the high priest would come. Now, wow. Um, there, is, there, is a, there is a distinct progression in the typology represented by each of these items within the tabernacle. There are seven steps 
from the outside to the innermost chamber where the sinner beholds Christ merely as a man to the inner sanctum of full and complete rest and victory in Jesus Christ. The altar, immediately after we enter the door, it pictures the cross. Okay? So it's salvation at the cross. And then the next step is we come to the labor of separation. This represents separation from the world and from the flesh and from things that defile us through the labor of cleansing by the washing of water by the word. It, it, it's cleansing. It's purification. It's needed on a daily basis. Even though all our sins are forgiven, we still need our hands and our feet washed. And then, and then so we've got salvation, purification, cleansing. And then the table of showbread, that's a place of fellowship. It's, it's where we feast on the word of God. And the candlestick is the Holy Spirit shedding light upon the word of God. We're drawn into fellowship by the spirit that dwells within. And then we're supposed to let our light shine, Matthew chapter 5. And then the next step is the symbol of, is the altar, which is a symbol of prayer and intercession. You see the progression we're making through the Christian life until we ultimately enter in through the veil into the most holy place and at the Ark of the Covenant, surrender all. Sheltered under the mercy seat, we find perfect peace, complete victory, and rest. Let's just label these. The brazen altar is going to be conversion. I'm sorry. The yeah, brazen altar, then the labor is going to be, we'll call it purification. We got Bible study. Fellowship. Service. Prayer. And we'll just call that rest. It all culminates with our dwelling in the very presence of God. We could also call that victory. Neat how, neat how that lay, lays out. And it shows us their progression through the Christian life. Now, an application. There are so many different directions we could go to study the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. This is what, this is what came to mind as I prepared for the lesson this morning. The Ark played an interesting role in the nation's history. You can go to 1 Samuel 4. I don't know if we'll have time to read any of these passages together, but this is where it's coming from. I trust you're somewhat familiar with the accounts. In 1 Samuel 4, Eli is the high priest. He had two very ungodly sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Those sons caused people to despise uh, the offerings of God. Samuel at this point had been lent unto the Lord by his mother. He is serving in the tabernacle with Eli the high priest. In chapter 3, he begins to hear from the word of God. And in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the, the Israelites are in a battle against the Philistines and they are losing the battle and they come up with a, a wonderful plan. So they thought Hophni and Phinehas went into the Holy of Holies, took the Ark of the Covenant out, brought it to the battlefield, thinking it would be a good luck charm that God would have to be among them if they had the Ark and that they would surely defeat their enemies. Uh, believe it or not, they were wrong. They were sadly mistaken. The Philistines were scared at first, but then courage welled up 
within them, and they defeated the Israelites. It was a horrible day. Hophni and Phinehas died. Eli, the high priest, he was a very fat man. He was sitting on a wall. When he heard the news, he fell backward. He broke his neck. He died. One of Hophni and Phinehas, I can't remember which one, one of their wives was delivering a child at the time, and she died in the childbirth, and she named the child Ichabod because the glory had departed. Now, she... That was in reference to the Ark of God being taken, but it wasn't, it wasn't the, 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 the piece of furniture. The glory had departed from Israel because the people had begun to ignore what was contained within the Ark of the Covenant. They, they thought the Ark of the Covenant gave them some special privilege or some special blessing because they had it, but they ignored what was inside. And so the glory departed from that, that, that reason, there's an application there for us. Um, just because we have the right God, the right religion, the right scriptures, that doesn't mean God's on our side if we ignore everything that those scriptures we claim to have say. Okay? The Bible's not a good luck charm to put on your dash. You don't have a special hedge of protection against the devil because you go to the Bible Baptist Church. You have to actually believe the word of God for yourself. You actually have to obey the word of God for yourself. Okay? So these people, they were loose in their morals, covetous in their practice. They misused and abused their place and position. They turned the grace of God and lasciviousness, caused God's people to blaspheme. And 1 Samuel 4, now the ark of God is in the enemy's possession. In chapter 5, they set it up in the temple of Dagon. They came back the next morning and found their God on the floor. And set him back up. Just the wind must have blown him over. Came back the next morning. Not only is he on the floor, now his head and his hands are busted off. And they, they, they began to very clearly understand the significance of what's taking place, especially when the men of the city are smitten with emeralds. And we don't want to go into a detailed uh, study of that this morning. And, and that, that, that situation spread from one city to the next. Five Philistine cities uh, afflicted with a very uncomfortable ailment. And many people died. Among the Philistines during this time. And so for seven horrible months, they're tormented. And they come to the decision, we've got to get rid of this thing. We've got to send it back. And let's, let's not send it empty. They, they included an offering. The offering was images of their emeralds, which I still to this day don't understand. Then they took two milk kind, two mother cows, and they attached them to a cart. They left the calves at home. They sent the mother cows down the road. They said, if they continue down the road, we'll know we're supposed to get rid of this thing, that this is the reason that all of this has happened to us. But if they come back to their calves, these were nursing mother cows, if they come back to their calves, then we'll know it was all just a fluke. It, it just happened by chance. It has nothing to do with the ark of God. Of course, the cows continued down the road. It came into a town called Beth Shemesh. I'm sorry, Beth Shemesh into the field of a man by the name of Joshua. The priests came, the people rejoiced, they all offered sacrifice, and then 50,080 Israelites died because they looked into the ark of God and a plague began to spread. It's a serious piece of furniture. And so the people in Beth Shemesh, they begin to feel like the Philistines, get this thing away from us. So the men of Kirjath-Jerim come in chapter 7 and they retrieve the ark. And it stayed in Kirjath-Jerim for 20 years. And God blessed the house of Obed-Edom. 
But now Uzziah um, comes in 2 Samuel 6. I got a little bit ahead of myself. Obed-Edom actually shows up in this passage. 2 Samuel 6. David says, I'm going I'm to bring the ark of God to Jerusalem. Except he decided to do it the same way the Philistines did it and not the way that God's word said to do it. And so it's on a cart driven by this guy named Uzzah. Remember him? And the cart began to shake and Uzzah thought, uh-oh, I better not let the ark of God fall. I will stabilize it. He reached and he touched it. And he wasn't a priest. And God struck him dead. David got mad at God until he started studying his Bible and realized he was the one in error. The ark is, it, the, the whole procession stops, obviously, when Uzzah dies. It's then the heart, ark goes in the house of Obed-Edom. God blesses Obed-Edom. Later, they get it right. They come back. They, they, they bring it to Jerusalem in the proper way with joy and rejoicing all around. Here's, here's the application from all of that. The ark represented God's presence. And people who took it lightly paid a very steep price. God was very serious about what he said about the ark. It was not something to be trifled with. It was not something to be toyed with. It was not something to be viewed as a good luck charm or something just for personal advantage or benefit. And, and here's the application for us today because I understand and you understand and we all thank God that he operates a little differently in the New Testament than he did in the Old Testament. When's the last time you saw somebody get struck dead because, you know, the moment they stepped out? Just, I'm glad God doesn't operate that way. We would have a much smaller Sunday school class this morning. We probably wouldn't have me as a teacher. I, 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 I'm sure I would have had one of those experiences by now. Lauren is even more sure than I am I would have had one of those experiences by now. But here's the point. God, the, the God of heaven today is the same God of heaven in 2 Samuel 6. He's the same God of heaven in 1 Samuel 5. He's the same God of heaven that smote 50,080 Israelites because they didn't take him seriously. They looked into the ark of God. Okay? He's just as holy. He's just as righteous. He's just as pure. He's just as clean. He is just as intolerant of our sin as he was of their sin. And here's the application. I don't think we take God seriously enough. Do you think that would be fair to say? I don't think we view God in the same way that these people began to view God after they experienced these events. We think that because we live in an age of grace... And because we have eternal security, and because I've got a home in heaven, nothing can change that, that it's not such a big deal for me to be anything less than serious about my spiritual life, my personal holiness, my fellowship and communion with God, my service to Him, my worship of Him. We don't take it seriously enough. These people learn just how serious God was about the things that they weren't very serious about. 
Look at 2 Samuel chapter, I'm sorry, 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 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 6, verse number 11. We just close with, with a look at this one guy we mentioned, 2 Samuel 6. I want the ark to remind you that you need to take God seriously. And here's a man who did. He took a different approach, apparently. 2 Samuel 6, 11, the ark of the Lord continued to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom. And all his household. Now, it had been in the field of Joshua in Beth Shemesh to a much different outcome. Apparently, Joshua and Obed Edom took a very different approach to God. And what I want to ask you this morning is do you have a Joshua approach? Do you have a Beth Shemesh approach? Or do you have an Obed Edom approach? How seriously do you take the Lord? This man enjoyed great blessing from the ark. A lot of people enjoyed something a a lot different. Right? But God's holy. He's righteous. He doesn't tolerate sin. He might not act as swiftly as he did in 2 Samuel 6, but he's no less okay with our sin than he was with their sin. It's... It's not okay for us to ignore God's word any more than it was okay for them to ignore God's word. Let's let the ark remind us how seriously we need to take God and his word and our relationship to him. Lord, help us. Father, thank you this morning for the truth from your word that you allowed us to study together. Thank you, dear God, for these young men, these young young ladies here. Pray that your Holy Spirit would burn these truths in our hearts. May we be doers of the word and not hearers only in Jesus' name.